happen. Good. All right. Uh, wanted to just highlight a couple of uh, upcoming events. Um, uh, first of all, next week, immediately following the service, we are going to have a prayer meeting uh, to talk about. Um, uh, we're going to we're going to share with you some things about our uh, our church and its finances, and then we're going to ask you to pray um, about all of that. Um, we're running a little bit behind in terms of our giving, and so we want to just take that to the Lord and pray together and seek Him and see what He might uh, instruct us to do with that. So uh, we're going to be doing that. Uh, also, starting this Wednesday at noon, there'll be a prayer meeting here every week on Wednesday at noon. Uh, I will be here, so whoever decides to show up and pray with me uh, is welcome to do so. But I will be here every week unless I'm on vacation or out of town for some other reason. Uh, but I will be here to pray, and so in, invite you and encourage you to come and pray uh, noon uh, on uh, Wednesday uh, every week. Uh, we will be here to pray. So uh, I encourage you to do that. Uh, also, uh, with the Wild Game Feast, there it's not just that event. I don't know how many of you know that. Uh, but on Saturday night, we'll have the Wild Game Feast, of course, uh, and that'll be a lot of fun. That starts at 5.30, and tickets are going, ticket sales are going actually really well at this point. Um, we, uh, if you want tickets, uh, I encourage you to get some because we do have a capacity limit <laughs> on how many people we can actually feed and, and uh, seat at tables in here. Um, but... Uh, on Sunday morning, Larry will be here to deliver the message, which is uh, the title of the message I can already give you. It's called, What Kind of Person Do I Have to Be for God to Accept Me? And it's going to be uh, uh, evangelistic in focus in terms of uh, how, does, how does a person enter into a good relationship with God? What kind of person do I have to be for God to accept me? And then on Sunday afternoon... Uh, he will be here again uh, for a luncheon with any of you who would like to join us uh, at 1230. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet out on the Wild Game Feast table out there in the hallway. Uh, for that, the uh, title of this training session he's going to do is, uh, is called What's So Scary About Evangelism? Uh, it's about overcoming your fears and learning to share the gospel in a way that's clear and bold uh, with people. And then uh, our leadership team is invited to another event that night, uh, 5.30 p.m. on Sunday night. Again, back here, and we'll have some food and that kind of thing. You can't have a church meeting without food. So, um, But if you're a ministry team leader or an elder or a deacon, uh, we encourage you to participate in that. That, that is going to be called uh, How the Church Lost Its Cutting Edge in Evangelism and what it can do to regain it. So uh, so I encourage you to participate in that as well. Now, I'm going to pray uh, because we're going to get into God's Word together, and I want uh, God's Spirit to guide us as we open up His, His Word to us. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the marvelous privilege we have of being called out of darkness into the marvelous light of your Son. That we have been rescued, as Colossians says, from the domain 
of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's own Son. And Father, we, uh, we cannot account for that apart from using words like grace and mercy and goodness and love to describe your actions toward us. And Father, we thank you for that magnificent love displayed to us in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And Father, we pray this morning that that you would be the leader of this church, that you would, would um, by your word and your spirit, uh, lead us and help us to understand the path that we need to go in the future. As well as, as we open your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it to us, help us to not only understand it, but obey it and walk in light of it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning. We're going to actually finish up Romans chapter 2 in our study here this morning. And uh, whenever you share the gospel with someone, one of the best ways I have found to introduce it is to ask some probing questions uh, about where they are and, and, and what they think about spiritual things. You know, you can ask questions like, uh, do you have any spiritual beliefs? And a lot of times people do, and they'll talk to you about it. And you can then ask a couple of these questions that were first developed by uh, Evangelism Explosion about 55 years ago. Uh, the first one is, uh, suppose you died today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? Do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? And, if, and a lot of times people would say, yeah, I think I'd go to heaven. I, I, I'm pretty sure that... Uh, uh, that I would go and that, uh, you know, I would get in. And then you, then you can ask them this question. Well, suppose you did die. And suppose that you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And if you talk to people, you get really two classes of answers. You get, on the one hand, Christians who tell you, well, I would tell him that I have believed that his son died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. And as a result, by faith, I have received salvation. You get that answer sometimes. And that's great when you get that answer because you know you've just met a brother or a sister. And that's cause for praise to God. But a lot of times what you get is a different kind of answer. And they will say things like this. Well, I'm a good person. Or, well, I've gone to church my whole life. You know, I, I started going to church when I was a little kid, and I've just kept going. Or, well, of course, I'm a Baptist. Or, I'm a Presbyterian. Or, I'm a Catholic. Or I'm a Lutheran, or of course I'm going to heaven, because don't you know that all people who are members of my particular religious stripe of people are all going to heaven? Didn't you know this? And the problem is, is that with all those kinds of answers, they all have one thing in common. They all have a whole lot to do with them and very little to do with Jesus. Because they all start out the same way. Well, I 
did this, or I am doing this, and therefore I know that I am going to get my way in. And they have an eye problem, amen? Um, <laughs> and they're because they are trying, they are trying to, by their own effort, gain God's approval and God's acceptance, and that's not a person enters into God's presence or into relationship with him. And this problem is not new. In fact, Paul addresses it in the, in the chapter of Romans that we're looking at this morning. And we need to hear and understand his answer, not only for our own lives, but so that as we share the gospel with people, just like Paul did, that we can help people to understand clearly what the gospel is and what it isn't. And so that we can help people not to be misguided and trust in their good deeds or their church membership or whatever else to save them. Because those things do not save. Amen? So I want to show you Paul's answer to this, this, uh, this problem that people have in terms of what are you trusting in? to gain God's favor. What are you trusting in to gain his approval? And I've called this message the heart of the problem because if you want to know what the problem is, you should go and look in the mirror, right? It's all of us, right? We are the problem. And we are alienated from God. And the problem is not our behavior. The problem is our hearts that drive our behavior. And so so I want to show you this here. uh, Beginning in verse 17... But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing... Do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, let me just back into this a little bit and give you a little context on, on, on this message because you, you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, what's this business about Jews? I thought this was uh, a letter written to the church and all. I don't understand where, where Paul's going with this. Let me just uh, back into this just a little bit. What Paul is doing in Romans is writing a letter to a church he has not been to to this point. And he is hoping to build a gospel partnership with them so that as he is traveling west with the gospel, that they will send him on further to the west, past Rome, onto on Spain and Portugal and other places that had never been exposed to the gospel at this point. And so Romans is written to them to present the message that Paul proclaims everywhere he goes so that they can see and hear and understand in print what Paul speaks whenever he travels somewhere. And he is highlighting in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 the need for the gospel. 
And the first type of people he says need the gospel are the hedonistic Gentiles, of which there were a lot in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was made up of people who all worshipped idols, who uh, as a result of their idol worship were given over to immorality of various types and kinds, and who were turned away from the worship of the one true God. And so he says these people need the gospel. Chapter 1, that's the point of chapter 1. That the gospel, if you want the theme verse of Romans, it's this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. But he deals with Gentiles and their sin first. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, he's dealing with Jews and their sins. So last week we saw that God sees the sins of the self-righteous, that though they might have great behavior on the outside, on the inside they still need a heart transplant. They still need the gospel. And this week he's talking about another aspect of these pious religious Jewish people, their knowledge of the law. And he is, he is saying to pious sinners like his fellow Jews is that what he's telling them in chapter 2 is that religion does not save you. Religion does not save you. They have false confidence in their knowledge. He starts off verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, and that might seem like an odd phrase because Obviously, a person is either a Jew or they're not. Amen? But what Paul seems to be talking about here is the pride that many Jews felt in their identity as members of God's chosen nation of Israel. And is it good to be a member of that nation? Yes. In fact, it is something of which you can be proud in a certain sense that you are part of God's people. In one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But their problem was is that also wrapped into their pride in being Jews was their pride in possessing and knowing God's word. And they felt that knowing and having God's word, what we today call the Old Testament, what they called the law, uh, was their guarantee of going to heaven. That, well, see, I know I'm going to heaven because I have and I know God's word. And Paul highlights in these verses a couple reasons why they believe this. Number one, according to verse 17 and 18, is because they were instructed from the law. Hey, God tells us what to do in the law. And they could rely on the law, therefore. And they could boast in God. And they could know His will. And they could approve what is excellent. And by the way, are all of those things true about God's Word? Yes. They're all true. You, you do know God through His Word. You can know His will. You can approve what is excellent based on reading and understanding and knowing His Word. And the law gave them an understanding of who God is and what He commands and what is right and what is good. And, it came, and because it came from God, they knew it was fully trustworthy and worthy of being obeyed. And they could also boast that God had spoken to them uniquely 
because he had given them his word, something that God had done for no other people on the earth. And are all these things true again? Yes, they are. Moving on to verse 19 and 20, Paul gives another reason why the Jews put their confidence for their salvation in knowing about God from his word. Because through it, and this is the reason, because through it, they taught other people about God. And again, they knew what Paul says about the scriptures in verse 20 is true. That in them is the embodiment of truth and knowledge. That's true. The scriptures contain the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They do. And from them you can teach other people. The Jews of Paul's day did that. They studied their Bibles so they could teach others. And through their study and their knowledge, they became what, they, what Paul refers to them as. Guides to the spiritually blind. Lights to those living in spiritual darkness, instructors to those making foolish choices, teachers to the spiritually immature that he here calls children. Are these good things? Yeah. Are these good, good works? Yeah, they are. But they, are they sufficient to bring a person to salvation? Paul says, no, they are not. Why not? Because mere knowledge about God is insufficient. Information by itself never transformed anybody's life. Let me give you an example. I'll give you a living example here, okay? I know that I should exercise more and eat less, right? Nevertheless, my pants are bigger than I want them to be, <laughs> right? How many of y'all can testify on that? Stay amen. All right. <laughs> okay, now, why is that? Because information by itself is not transformative, amen? Information by itself is not transformative. Knowing what is true does not change your life. And yet, Paul is saying these folks know what is true, but it hasn't changed their life. How do we know? Because of the questions he asked in the verses that follow. Where he says, you who teach, who preach against stealing, do you steal? Well, in some cases, yes, they did. In fact, the priests many times had a little what might be called sanctified graft uh, within the temple. All right? Uh, through things like the money changers and whatever else. He says, you who, com you who preach against adultery and tell other people, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yes. In many cases, they did. In fact, the Talmud records the teachings of the various rabbis, and three of the ones whose teachings are included in the Talmud were guilty of adultery. By the way, does adultery happen in the church too? Sometimes, tragically, yes. You who preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? In some cases, yes. 
all these questions aren't just rhetorical, in other words. These highlighted things that were really going on at the time this is written, even at the time that the same people are who are boasting in their knowledge about God and their knowledge of God's Word are committing these same kinds of things. And by the way, can that ever be a problem? Can that ever be a problem that people preach and proclaim a better message than they live? Yeah. That can be a real serious issue. That what I know to be true, what I have learned from God's Word, what I proclaim to others, there is a gap between what I say with my mouth and what I do with my life. Amen? And so he is saying knowledge by itself is not salvific because knowledge does not transform people. It doesn't transform people. And when there is a gap, by the way, between what we proclaim and what we do, what happens? Number one, God is dishonored. Look at the text there says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And, number two, people outside the faith blaspheme the God that you claim to worship as a fraud. Anybody ever had that happen? You have some prominent Christian that falls in some really obvious way. Something that not even people outside the church necessarily participate in. And then they, this unbeliever that you know hears about it, and they come to you and they say, so I uh, heard about your boy over there, or your girl over there. Did you know, by the way, that that preacher that you, listens to, that you listen to is an adulterer or a swindler or whatever? Or, you know, hey, I heard about heard about that person in your church boy that sure was a train wreck huh right and what do you do in those circumstances i tell you what i do i kind of i feel ashamed i feel ashamed that the name of god is besmirched as a fraud because of the behavior of his people sometimes and Paul is highlighting that. He is saying, look, y'all, just like Isaiah said in chapter 25, just like I'm saying here, sometimes the behavior of God's people, when it does not match the truth they profess, causes God to be dishonored and His name to be blasphemed by people who do not know Him. And the point of all these verses is very simple, that knowledge does not save. Knowledge does not bring transformation. And what is needed, in fact, what is absolutely essential is the Gospel. It is, the Gospel is needed even for people who have grown up exposed to God's Word. Amen? Who have soaked in the Bible almost by osmosis, right? 
where it is all around them. Maybe you had parents who read you the Bible at your kitchen table or who prayed with you every night by your bedside or who uh, took you to a church like this one where the Bible is proclaimed in about everything we do. I think we read the Bible before we have a business meeting. Okay, We soak and marinate in God's Word in places like this, right? But what is needed for someone who has, let's say, gone to Awana, been to Sunday school, uh, listened to me preach until they're sick of hearing me, etc. What is needed? is the gospel. What is needed is the gospel because information does not save. Knowledge about God does not change anyone's life. The gospel is the only thing that changes anybody's life. Now, in verse 25 and 26, Paul addresses some other things that people rely on for their salvation and its religious rituals. Look at what God says to us through Paul here. Verse 25 and 26, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the, the law. Now sometimes people will tell you this when you ask them this question. If you stood before God and He asked you, why should I let you into heaven? They will say, well, I have been baptized or I got confirmed or I... Uh, you know, am a member of some church, or I have have gotten, uh, I've taken communion, etc. Right? Or I went to confession, or they'll give you any kind of number of religious rituals they have participated in, and they'll say, "Well, of course, knowledge about God doesn't save. Everybody knows that." But I have something better. I have completed the prescribed religious ritual. And that does. That saves. And they might not say it exactly like that, but that's what they mean when they give their answer. And among Paul's fellow Jews, the prescribed ritual was circumcision. That every Jewish male, on the eighth day after he was born, went before the rabbi, and they circumcised his body. And that was meant to be the mark according to the Old Testament law. It was a command from God to the Jewish nation and a marker that they in fact belonged to the nation. That they were part of God's covenant nation of people. And it was meant to be a sign that identified God's people. It symbolized the fact of being dedicated, both you as well as your descendants to following the true God by marking the organ through which those descendants would come. That, the, that everyone in the line of Abraham, everyone descended from Abraham, and everyone who descends from youth, uh, from Abraham is supposed to be marked as members of the people of God. And it was meant to function among the Jews under the Old Covenant 
much like baptism functions for us today as an outward, physical, and visible symbol of an inner, spiritual, and invisible heart transformation. But the performance of the act didn't convey the inner heart transformation. It merely symbolized what was supposed to have taken place. Amen? Just like baptism, you can, you know, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you get baptized, what you're doing is you're proclaiming your identity with Christ and being buried with him in his death and being raised to new life with him. And having your sins, as a result of being buried with Christ, put to death in His death, so that as you, as He is raised to new life, so you are raised to new life, washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. Amen? That is what you symbolize in baptism. But if you are a believer, that's what it does symbolize. If you are not a believer, then what happens is you, you get wet at church. It doesn't save anyone. Completing the prescribed religious ritual does not save you from sin and death and hell. Circumcision is great. That's why Paul says circumcision is great. If you keep the rest of God's law to which it's connected. But if you don't keep all the rest of the law, then it doesn't help. In fact, from God's perspective, a a man who is outwardly circumcised, but inwardly is a rebel against God, is just the same. In fact, he is worse off than a guy who is uncircumcised, but obeys the Lord. It's better, in fact, if you never did anything at all, if you're going to be a rebel. Because if you never did anything at all, at least you don't profess to know and obey God. Right? And now please understand, Paul doesn't think here in these verses that anybody can actually keep the law. He doesn't think that. Because if you read later in Romans, you you will come to understand that if anybody could keep the law, there would have been no need for Christ. So he's not saying, well, somebody you know, that, it, that does keep the law but isn't circumcised is going to actually condemn you because he doesn't think there is any such person. Right? He's just saying, hypothetically, if you were uncircumcised and you kept the law, then you'd be in better shape than a guy who is circumcised and doesn't because circumcision, is, his point is, that religious ritual doesn't do anything for you from a salvation perspective. It's merely a symbol of what is meant to have happened on the inside of your heart. And what is true in Paul's day is also true in ours. People who answer this question, if you died and stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? With something like, well, I was baptized and confirmed down at Our Lady of the Creek. Or... I was, uh, I've been a member of First Metho Lutheran Episcopalian Church ever since I was a young lady or a young man. Okay? I've done it. I've did it all. I got baptized and confirmed and washed in the blood. Okay? I did it all. Right? 
except that your heart was never changed. And that part was missing because the completion of religious ritual does not save you from sin and death and hell. And Paul tells us in verses 28 and 29 what does. That salvation is spirit-empowered heart transformation. Read with me here, verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Again, here Paul is contextually addressing his fellow Jews who put their confidence in their participation in the rite of circumcision. And his point is that circumcision, the circumcision that matters is not the one that is performed outside on your body by human hands, but inside on your soul by the Holy Spirit. Amen? That what needs to be cut away is not your flesh, but your sin nature. And the only person who can do that is the Holy Spirit. And He cuts away your sin nature and He gives you a new heart that is sensitive and obedient to Him. And what the law is powerless to produce in terms of the written command, God's Spirit gives to us by way of heart transformation. Do this and that the law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The idea being this, that, there, that what the law tells you to do, you cannot do. It is like telling a man with no legs he needs to run a marathon. We cannot do it. We cannot keep the law's commands. Even though they're right, even though they're good, even though they're given by God, we cannot keep them. Why? Because our wicked heart wants to do everything but that. And left to ourselves, that is exactly what we will do. But when the Spirit of God comes in, I get a new heart and a transformed life. In other words, the right answer to the question, why should God let you into heaven? If I'm given the answer, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say there is no reason why He should. Because based on my performance, if I'm relying on myself and my own goodness and my good deeds, then there is every reason why God should send me to hell. But, God, who is rich in mercy, sent His Son to the cross to die in my place for my sin, the death that I deserve, and to raise to life after His death that I might have new life through faith in Him by the Spirit. Amen? That answer if it's what you actually believe in your heart of hearts, will get you in too. 
because that's the only one that God accepts. That there is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Amen? I got nothing of my own. I don't have sufficient knowledge of God's Word. I can't participate in enough uh, religious rituals. I can't do enough good deeds. In fact, if I'm relying on that, it will send me to hell. I'm relying on the one who did all that was necessary that I might have a circumcised heart that is able to obey God because the Spirit comes into my life. Amen? And His blood cleanses us from all our sin and all our shame. And we who are believers in Jesus Christ have much to celebrate. We do. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have a lot to celebrate. In fact, you have sufficient reason to praise God and give Him worship until the end of eternity, which never ends. If the only thing that God ever did for you, if the only thing He ever did for me was to keep us from going to hell, we would have ample reason to give God praise forever and ever. But He has done much more than that, hasn't He? He has also done things like this. He has given us His Spirit to indwell us. He has given us a, a, a membership in His family. He has adopted us as His sons. He, uh, through that adoption, has given us an inheritance that includes everything that exists in the universe. I'll beat that, Grandma. Okay, <laughs> right? Uh, that we, I mean, some of us have been left in inheritance, right? But how about that one? That God, through the death of His Son and His resurrection from the dead, gives us an inheritance of all things that exist. He is going to one day elevate you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, over the angels. How about that? that you are a joint heir with Jesus, that you uh, have all things that belong to God because of His grace. And on top of that, in the here and now, God answers all kinds of your prayers. From the magnificent to, God, I need salvation. To the mundane, God, I need a job. God, I need to get this bill paid, and I don't know where the money's coming from. Now, these kinds of things, God intervenes in that stuff too. You know, I, I joked about this Thursday night with my leadership class. One of, in my previous church, we had a time of prayer where we would actually pass a mic around, and we would take prayer requests. And there was one little lady, whose name was Norma. And she would stand up every week and have something to praise God for. God love her. It was always something that I felt a little bit foolish praying for. And I would pray for things like, you know, it was sunny outside today. Praise God. And I'd praise God for with Norma because <laughs> it was sunny outside today. And then one week she stood up and she said, my dog has run off and I need you to pray that 
the dog will come home. He's out lost in the cornfield somewhere, and we don't know where he is. And so I felt really stupid. I did. I'm getting very vulnerable with you here, y'all. <laughs> okay. But in, 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 outside, I went, oh, God, I pray that Shep will come home. And I looked very pious. And inside, I'm thinking, this is the stupidest prayer I've ever prayed in my life. Okay. And then next week, she stood up. Little Norma stood up, and she said, Pastor, I want to praise God this morning, and I want you all to join with me because Shep has come home. And so then I got up to the pulpit, and I prayed, and I felt so stupid. And I went, thank you, Jesus, that Shep has come home. And then right at that moment, I felt convicted in my spirit because I thought, here you sit, you self-righteous sucker, condemning this dear lady because she is praying over things that you think are silly. But the fact is that God cares about every little thing in your life. Amen? And God has saved you and He cares about the details of your life. And he has brought you into his family. And we have ample reason to praise God. And we are piling onto our salvation countless blessings. And God blesses us in ways we cannot count. But supreme among them all is the heart transformation we get by the Spirit. Amen. So we're going to pray. And then we're going to sing a hymn. And boy, have we got a good one this week. All right. I'm going to introduce it for you after we pray. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your mercy that you have saved us. Father, we thank you that it is not based on our knowledge of the Scriptures that we come into salvation, because then those of us who are slow to learn would have no hope. It is not by the religious rituals that we perform that we are saved. And thank, thank you, God, that that is true because if that were the case, then how would we ever know if we have done enough? And it is not by our good works. Thank you. It's not by our good works. Because if it were, Father, we would have, we would just have no peace. We would always be working, striving and striving, hoping that the scales would come out in our favor. But Father, you have placed Christ and his righteousness in the scales. And you have declared us righteous on the basis of his work on the cross. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that his blood cleanses us from all sin. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the hymn we're about to sing is called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And it was written by an Englishman uh, named William Cooper. Uh, it's spelled Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. Uh, he was a brilliant uh, hymn writer, much-loved poet in his own day. Uh, it's likely that this hymn was finished somewhere around 1771 uh, as part of a joint project with Pastor John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, they worked on a project together uh, called The Only Hymns, and uh, they included both Newton's hymn, 
Amazing Grace, as well as this one, There is a Fountain. And I just want to tell you, Cooper struggled throughout his life with numerous bouts of serious depression. Uh, it was debilitating to him for, at, at, for, at points for years. And in fact, he made three, three unsuccessful attempts on his own life before he finally uh, was able to come to some peace. And where he found peace was in his faith in Christ. Uh, and he wrote this hymn based on Zechariah 13.1. Uh, Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And Cooper saw the fulfillment of that promise and the cleansing that comes through faith in Christ. And my favorite line in the hymn is the first one, which says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Emmanuel means God with us. One of the titles for Jesus. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, all their guilty stains. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and let's sing some, some William Cooper from 300 years ago, all right, uh, about the, the magnificence of the, and the greatness of God's salvation for us in Christ.